Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. With VMware. Free your employees to work more securely from anywhere. Visit exertis.ie forward slash VMware. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Tech Talk. Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up over the next hour, we'll have our gaming roundup, including the new titles that we'll all be playing over the coming months. The VP of BlackBerry UK and Ireland will join me to talk about the reality of cyber threats from influencers to state bodies. Plus, the green startups setting the tone for tech in the future. As always, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter at JessKellyNT. Uh, we're going to start this week, however, with cyber security. As we know, this is a topic that has been front and centre of all of our minds here in Ireland Ever since the HSE ransomware attack, we have seen a huge spike in instances of individuals being targeted uh, through phishing attempts on text message, on WhatsApp, on their social media. It is rife. So how real is the threat to individuals and to businesses and what can we do about it? Well, I'm joined now by Kieran Heim, who is the VP of BlackBerry UK and Ireland. And Kieran, before we sort of talk through all those elements I've just listed there, can you just explain to the listener a little bit about how and where BlackBerry comes into this equation because cybersecurity may not be the first thing that pops into someone's head when they think of the brand. Yeah, that's a great question. I think <clears throat> that's probably something that uh, that many people are trying to understand what BlackBerry does now. Uh, we, we were obviously uh, synonymous with the, the the sort of the handset um, of the BlackBerry uh, from the BlackBerry days, but we've, we've moved on massively since then. So we no longer make um, hardware. Um, what we do is we've taken all of the great software that was in those BlackBerry uh, smartphones, uh, turned them into software components, and additionally added um, uh, cybersecurity components to that to create an overall cybersecurity uh, suite of uh, technology and services uh, that allow our customers to you know, increase their security posture. What does that actually mean? Well, um, we defend uh, endpoints and users. So effectively, what we're trying to do is make sure that the devices and the data um, that uh, users and people have uh, are secure so they can go about their daily business uh, and um, ensure that when they're using them, uh, everything is kept secure uh, and where it should be. Um, our, our strategy is, is, is slightly different to most, or it is different to most. Um, we believe that you know uh, prevention at the source of um, uh, at the source of the issue is possible. What I mean by that is uh, a lot of ransomware attacks are allowed to get into a network. They're allowed to what we call execute, which means you know run the program effectively, and that's the source of the ransomware that you know we're seeing uh, uh, get get into the market. Um, what we believe we can do is prevent that happening in the first place. So um, uh, execute uh, the, the kill earlier in the kill chain that allows us to stop the ransomware in its track uh, to start off with, rather than allowing it to execute in the uh, in once it's on your device. Yeah, and you mentioned those BlackBerry devices. I'm pretty sure everyone can picture a BlackBerry device and uh, security is at the core of those devices or was at the core of those devices. That's why so many politicians use them for such a long time. Uh, So I suppose it makes sense that this is now the the sector that you're working in. Um, I'm intrigued to know where you think we are missing a trick when it comes to cybersecurity. 
Does it come down to an individual user? So in the case of the HSE ransomware attack, we know that um, somebody within the HSE or one of the systems opened an email attachment and that was how the um, the ransomware got into the system. So is it user education? Is it that we need better software? Or is there anything that can be done from a hardware point of view? Like where are we missing the trick here? Uh, that that is a great question because um, <clears throat> I think it, that is the holy grail of cybersecurity and security in general. Um, but I, I don't think uh, the the technology alone uh, can solve all of the issues. Um, I think I always look at it through the lens of people, process, and technology. Um, so uh, going back to your point about the, the the person that clicked the link on the email or clicked the document on the email there's probably a training requirement there um and i think that you know we should we should in, ensure that all of our all of our teams all of our staff get the appropriate training to recognize what you know suspicious behavior or what could be suspicious behavior in their environment but i also think that does that does two things one it enables um uh the the, the businesses or the organizations to become more secure but i think it also has a social impact to it that enables um, you know, the, the the general public to get more awareness uh, in their personal life as, as to what they should and shouldn't be doing when they when they're clicking links and, and and documents that are being sent randomly. And I think if we if we do that education in a more broad brush approach, it, the whole security posture of society in general, you know, goes up a notch. So I think by organisations adopting uh, a training approach to to give that those behavioural uh, inputs to uh, to individuals, that I think the whole society benefit, benefits from it. Um, from a technology perspective, you know, there's a raft of um, uh, technologies out there, some fantastic technologies that really do help um, uh, prevent a lot of cyber attacks. You know, if, if it wasn't for those technologies, the, you know, it, it, the, the amount of cyber attacks right now is, is huge. It's prevalent, right? It, every single day people are being attacked. Um, but without those technologies, then you know, the, 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 it would be a, 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 be a lot worse. Um, but, I, but going back to the point, I think it's people, process, and technology. We have to attack all three elements um, of the of that sort of uh, of that sphere, if you like, in order to be able to really make sure that uh, uh, our environments, whether at home or at work, are secure. Yeah, but how do we introduce those three elements, though? Because I've looked at a lot of case studies and read up on a lot of examples, and I suppose my assessment of it and. <laughs> this is obviously not an academic or uh, fully formed thought, but uh, top level, it looks to me that we are essentially just adding a layer of stuff on top of foundations that exist rather than ensuring that um, cybersecurity is ingrained in the DNA of every single part of the company. So is it possible to do that retrospectively? Because obviously we can't shut down every company and build them up from scratch again. Yeah, that's that. That's a, that's another great question. I think yeah, that security by design or security inbuilt by design is is I see it from a technology perspective. Having worked in many technology companies, is now a very prevalent um, uh, design factor when when organisations are building software or hardware platforms, for example. So understanding and starting with security and cybersecurity as a, as a first principle in their design. Um, I'm, we are seeing, you know, applications and and hardware become more more inherently more secure throughout the life cycle uh, of, of that design and R and D phase right into production. That said, 
um, there, you know, there, there are some extremely clever um, uh, people out there that that can find those uh, those errors in coding or whatever it may be to get the exploits and and you know come in and uh, find that find that uh, vector to get into an environment. So I think you know. I think we've, we've we're doing a better job uh, in in the technology sector for sure, um, and I think a lot of the uh, legacy um, systems that that certainly you know, I would I would argue public sector lagged behind um, enterprise for a bit, but I think they've caught up now. Um, the legacy complexities that we had um, around trying to manage huge um huge infrastructure estates have, have have you know started to alleviate and people are now be able to focus on modernizing and digitizing their platforms which with the with the we just talked about the r d of the new um new new applications and infrastructures coming through i think that we're probably getting a bit more secure as we come into you know the more of the digital age i don't i, th I think there is still complexity in the environments um you know, users are still ever demanding uh, around the things that they need to to, to get their their, their daily um, chores done uh, or their daily work done, and because of that, um, there is always going to be a, a need for you know the ability to be agile when we when we talk about business productivity. Um, so the complexity is still there, um, but I think as organisations are are putting uh, sort of um, uh, products into R and D. I think that's uh, that cybersecurity or security is absolutely you know right in front and centre uh, as part of their design process now. Yeah, but I want to um, delve into the company and the business side of things a little bit further. But before we do, let's just talk a little bit about the individuals because sometimes it can be uh, easily dismissed, I suppose, the notion of an individual being targeted by a hack attempt, um, a ransomware attack, a phishing attack, whatever it might be. Sometimes people roll their eyes to the skies and say, oh, let's just move on. But we are seeing a huge spike in terms of individuals uh, having their social media uh, locked, for example, and either they're asking for a ransom or they're using the the, the account for other purposes. Um, that can have a financial impact because we know that there are influencers, there are individuals now who make their income from social media. So would you agree that we need to take these instances seriously and we need to highlight them and create a bit of awareness about them as well? Well, I mean, let's let's boil it down. You know, some social media platforms are uh, the, the the income generators for some people that only generate their income from social media platforms. So they are businesses in their own right in some ways. Um, so you, I, I I completely agree. I think if we look at the vectors that um, that hackers and and cyber criminals are using, it is it's multi it's multi phased, right? So they are they are attacking large organisations, but we are also talking about um, individuals and, and using those individuals um, uh, as 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 sort of gateways into those organisations, and that could start uh, very um, very easily on a social media platform. But in terms of dis we shouldn't dismiss any cyber attack, in my view, or any any um, attack that involves an individual being impacted in some way. And all of those are just as important, I would argue, as um, uh, as, as you know, some of the bigger attacks we're seeing, because they are 
the, the methodologies are very similar. They're probably using the same, you know, ransomware as a service type um, techniques in order to cause harm and um, and, and um, distress to, to to others that are just trying to go about their daily business. So I think you know we should we should really look at the social media platforms. Everyone should should make sure that they're they're doing the due diligence on their social media platforms to make sure that they're you know updating passwords and all that all that good stuff to keep themselves secure. More so if your if your if your reputation, um, you know, we talked about the 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 um, the business the productivity piece, but I think there's a reputational issue here as well. You know, if you get hacked and uh, suddenly you're posting some some spurious information, then you have reputational impact on you, and and that can take um, uh, quite a period of time to recover from. I was reading the uh, BlackBerry report and um, it was conducted or written last year, anyway, published last year. Um, and some of the findings in it were fascinating. And I suppose what I am trying to get my head around and what's freaking me out a little bit is the the size and scale of the of the threats and the fact that they are coming from all angles. Um, and one trend, you mentioned it there, is the ransomware as a service. And that is worrying because it's an individual. It may not be the most sophisticated individual. It could be uh, someone who's just found themselves within the dark web, getting access to the software, deploying it and not being sophisticated in terms of the deployment, the execution or the negotiation, which could have massive, you know, ramifications. I completely agree. I think... I think any industry where you know ransomware as a service uh, is a service in its own right. You know that you can actually go online, you can buy the software, and then if it doesn't work, you can call you can call a support line to, to get it working. Which is you know it's a weird uh, place we find ourselves in that you know a, an illegal piece of software is able to get support if it doesn't work. Um, so you know it, it is a strange place we find ourselves in. Um, I think that individuals uh, have some personal responsibility, and we talked earlier about making sure everyone is aware and they go through training um, to uh, to understand what you know what good behaviour looks like when you're when you're looking at stuff, whether at work or at home. Um, but I must say that you know I, I work in this industry um, and. Uh, I have nearly been caught out a number of times uh, in in the past few years uh, on my personal uh, email account, and and I, I'm very open and honest to, to and transparent about that because I work in this industry, um, I deal with it on a daily basis, and yet a very sophisticated attack uh, on my own uh, personal email uh, meant that I, I almost got ransomware. Um, it was only because I, I stopped myself from doing what I was just doing naturally that, that it prevented me from actually getting probably ransomware. But it was an email that came in that looked very, very genuine from someone that I was talking to. Um, and uh, we were swapping emails and, and a spurious email came in and I almost clicked on the link. So I think that awareness, um, and, and I'm very lucky because I work here in this industry, so I, I, I get to see it and, and should be more aware of it. But I think uh, we do need to make uh, individuals, you know, we need to raise the level of education about um, um, about what people should be doing online in their own personal email accounts as well as at work, because both are, both could be devastating to individuals. Yeah, I'm delighted you brought up that point because sometimes people email me and they are embarrassed that they clicked on a link or that they fell for something. Um but I suppose there, there's a level of sophistication to these hacks. And, you know, if you a professional can be duped, then absolutely anyone can. So it's it's good to acknowledge that. Um, and I'm curious to know, you know, what do you think countries could be doing? So from a government level, let's just say, from a cybersecurity point of view, 
is it enough to appoint a minister for cybersecurity? Is it enough to come out and give a strong speech when a, an attack happens or when there's a spike in in you know ransomware deployment? What can we do from a, from a government point of view to ensure that everybody understands the threat, everybody knows the basics to keep themselves protected and it's an ongoing effort to try and fight this type of crime? Yeah, uh, it's. It, I, I think in general the governments are doing uh, a, a good job. Um, I think, I think you know, there, there's an old saying, isn't it? Perfect, perfect is the enemy of good. And I think what the governments, uh, certainly in the UK and Ireland, have done is is a good job in difficult circumstances. Um, they have they've enacted, um, you know, they've set up cybersecurity um, centres of excellence. They've they've set up in in UK the NCSC, for example, does a fantastic job of of, of monitoring the UK's health, uh, if we could put it like that. Um, and I think it's really difficult for governments to um, uh, to to sort of get involved on a on a day to day basis when the, the 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 landscape of the threats are so vast. Um, you know, we we talk about from a military perspective, we talk about government perspective, we talk about individuals and businesses and organisations and schools and hospitals. You know, this, the the threat is pervasive across uh, the whole landscape on a daily basis. So I think it's really difficult for for governments to um, you know do do more than what they're doing. That said, um, I, it is the core, we did we do need a coordinated effort, you know, um, across all government departments, maybe across countries, and you know, certainly the the, the GDPR regulations um, that that had an impact on individuals and, uh, and and board thinking. I would put it that way, you know, so so that the change needed in order to make your organisation and your data and your customers' information more secure actually probably got to a board-level decision. So they had to consider the risk and, and then consider the investment needed to, in, to ensure that um, the, the company or organisation was secure so that they didn't face any uh, of the GDPR implications. So I think governments have a difficult job. Legislation um, and um, the, the ability for organisations to be able to safely engage with government if they have been hacked, and that open door transparency policy is really important. But the legislation that, that that is being driven out of the EU and out of the UK and the US, uh, I think, is 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 important to in, in terms of the maturity of organisations. We want everyone to be coming more mature uh, in their security posture and how they how they approach cybersecurity incidents, cybersecurity uh, response, cybersecurity detection. We need those in. We need those organisations to go on a maturity. Curve. Now, some are very sophisticated, um, but when we talk about the uh, small and medium enterprise uh, space, um, you know, it's an expensive place uh, for for those um, for those organisations to be because you know they can't possibly uh, afford to spend what the likes of you know the big banks or the, the large corporate spend on cybersecurity. But actually, the impact of a cybersecurity incident to them could be more devastating uh, potentially than it could be to the, some of the larger uh, organisations that have the money to be able to fix it. So I think I think to, to summarise, I think governments are doing a good job. Um, I think they've done a, a good job of of getting um, uh, getting policy and legislation in the right place. Like all things, it needs to evolve as as, as times progress. Um, but but I think that in order to do something, they needed to start somewhere, uh, and we're seeing progress in a number of areas, which I think um, for for me gives me give me hope that. 
uh, a coordinated effort uh, will really, you know, raise the security posture of um, uh, of, of countries, let alone organisations. Yeah, I don't want to hold you for much longer now, but I want to touch upon um, a piece we did here on Tech Talk a number of weeks ago now. And it was in relation to SMEs um, being targeted by ransomware. And I was interviewing a cybersecurity expert who acts on behalf of a lot of these uh, SMEs. Uh, He's essentially a contractor for them. And he was saying that a lot of them don't report when they've been targeted uh, because of the reputational damage that can be done. And that means then that we don't have full eyes on the scale of the problem. If, if, if people are being targeted and if they're not reporting it, we've no idea of the actual number that can be done. So how do we get around that to ensure that, you know, people are coming forward and they are going to either the Gardaí or to the Data Protection Commission to get the help and get the support and get the investigation and hopefully tackle the people behind this? Yeah, I think... Um it's, it's, I, I, was, I was on a roundtable this morning with uh, some uh, some uh, some customers who were mainly sat in that SME space, you know, small and medium enterprise. Um, and one of the first questions that we asked was, you know, has anyone been subject to a cyber attack? And no one wanted to answer the question. Um, and I think that there is a stigma and a reputational impact that 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 does or, or is perceived to happen uh, when you report something like that to uh, to the authorities. Now, how do we how do we get around that? Um, well, I think the US is sort of legislating, so you're going to have to you're going to have to you know be um, uh, be reporting if you have these breaches or incidents anyway. So, you know, we will see um, you know if that if that comes, which I think it has come into effect, we will see a massive spike in cyber uh, cyber incidents because actually everyone's going to have to be reporting it. Which kind of normalizes the um, the the, uh, the the events as they happen, right? And that's a horrible thing to to, to consider that actually, you know, um, it's normal. Now, w- those of us that work in the industry know that everyone is a target. Literally, every every individual, every business is a target. Um, th- there's a difference between target and victim. So everyone is a target, not everyone's a victim. And the trick here is to not be the victim. Uh, to put the right technology, the right people and the right processes in place so that you don't become that victim. Um, but in terms of the reporting piece, I think it's I, I think um, we we should accept that, you know, the reporting of cyber incidents um, globally, if we if we were to actually report every single one, then, you know, we would probably see a, a bit of a spike in terms of the overall numbers, because um, I'm sure that there are instances that, that just don't go reported. Uh, for, for very good uh, for very good reasons you know there's no requirement to for probably for one yeah well look there's no doubt that this won't be the last conversation we have here on tech talk about cybersecurity and i do hope to have you on again in the near future that was kieran heim vp at blackberry uk and ireland thanks so much for joining us here on news talk great thanks for your time jess when we come back here on news talk john riley joins us for the monthly gaming roundup tech talk on news talk with vmware Free your employees to work more securely from anywhere. Visit exertis.ie forward slash VMware. Tech Talk at Newstalk.com, as ever, is the email address if you want to get in touch, or you'll find me on Twitter at Jess Kelly NT. And we are joined by John Riley, editor of TheEffect.net, to talk through uh, the latest news from the world of gaming. Uh, John, uh, there's plenty going on as ever. Yeah, so this month in particular has been really busy with kind of the big gaming companies and the big kind of game publisher kind of developers 
showing their wares, basically. Mm. Every year there used to be a big conference called E3, or yeah. Electronics Exposition, Electronic, whatever. Um, that three happened. E's, basically. Three E's, basically. E3, three E's. Uh, but that didn't take place this year, but it still was this time of year that these guys come to show off what they've made, what they're doing, what they're working on, what's coming down the tracks. And it's it's a big hoo-ha for gamers and kind of the press alike to kind of see what's happening. So, um, yeah, June is always the month. Um, so we've had PlayStation show off, you know, what's coming to both their console and the new PlayStation VR 2 headset. And then Xbox, uh, along with their recent acquisition of Bethesda, a big, big gaming studio, show off what they're bringing to market in the next 12 months. And so so that's the kind of timeline, 12 months, because very often, you know, you're this time of year... People are looking at, you know, back to school stuff and then back to college stuff and yeah. then Christmas stuff like that's yeah. like then, then the year is gone. <laughs> so are we in that frame of mind with gaming or is it very much looking f- like beyond that? So into this time next year kind of territory well, as well? It was more so Xbox that kind of uh, set out their stall with this caveat going everything you're going to see at this event or at this kind of live stream is going to be playable in the next 12 months which is quite mm. the claim with all the delays we've been saying you know it's 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 refreshing to see that you have a solid time frame of just 12 months if they deliver on it if they deliver exactly whereas PlayStation showed off a lot of titles but never promised that they would be playable within the 12 month period either a lot of them were coming sooner uh, than that but mm. some of them we just don't have a solid set time frame on either but yeah it was it was nice to see Xbox commit to that but again hopefully they can deliver yeah well we, we we'll wait and see and of course we'll be giving out about it if they don't <laughs> celebrating it if they do right here on Tech Talk um, right let's zip through some of the big stories and the little stories from the last month or so in the world of gaming um, we have the Xbox Cloud Gaming coming to Samsung Smart TVs very soon yeah so we last time I was on we spoke about how there was kind of murmurs or rumours again that Xbox were working on their own little Chromecast like device or kind of now TV stick device that you could just plug into any TV mm-hmm. and it becomes a console and as such you're streaming the games to your TV this as I said I think I alluded to when we spoke last kind of even cuts out that device. So if you're a brand new 2022 Samsung TV owner, which is pretty niche, but look, we'll go with it. Um, they have what they call is their smart hub. Basically like their built-in operating system on the telly yeah. that you download your Netflix app to, your Disney Plus, whatever. Now, um, I think it's happening next in the, next month, soon, very soon, um, that you owners of these TVs can download the Xbox Game Pass app. And then you'll be able to just pair your Bluetooth, you know, any Bluetooth controller you have in the house or just any, if you pick up a Bluetooth controller, pair it to the TV, mm. your TV becomes your console. So you're just streaming games directly to your, your or Xbox titles directly through your TV. Like, okay, so streaming means you'll have to have pretty decent yeah. internet con- connectivity. Yeah. You stupid question time but you won't be downloading the titles to the telly because no. they're massive it's basically just like a, you're, you're, like it's Netflix. a video stream yeah, exactly okay. you were just, there's nothing being downloaded because it, your TV just physically wouldn't be able to hold it or even process it yeah, it's, just, it's all done in the cloud Okay, that's quite cool. It is. It's it's kind of where Xbox have been going for years. They've been working on this cloud system for as it's, for for many years now, and this is kind of it coming to fruition. So we have to, you know they're starting with Samsung. I imagine LG are going to get on board because it's just one of the most popular gaming kind of uh, manufact gaming TV manufacturers. I personally have a, a nice fancy OLED LG mm. that I love, and I just it's inevitable they're going to be bringing this streaming app to the platform as well. I'd like to think. Yeah, no, it makes sense because. Like a lot of people, if, if you are someone like you who's super into their gaming and you're getting the consoles to, to see all that yeah. picture and the colours that we talk about yeah. and all the rest, you're more likely to have a Samsung or an yeah. LG TV rather than some of the more random brands that still offer a really good picture yeah. but not quite on the same level. And it just kind of helps for people that 
weren't able to p- basically pick up the new Xbox Series X, the one with the you know the, the, the most fanciest premium console for mm-hmm. five hundred quid, because there is still a bit of a you know a, a delay in demand or in supply. Yeah. That or if their 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 physical layout or whatever it is doesn't allow for them to be connecting up these big consoles. If you to don't want to spend that kind of yeah. money, if you don't use it enough, yeah. Like we mentioned before, but if you're coming, like if you're lucky enough to be on summer holidays, or if you're going to be taking a break from work, or even if you just want to dabble back into the world of gaming and not have that. 500 quid expenditure yeah. because you're not going you know you're not going to get the value of it Yeah, this is ideal yeah like you're looking at about 13 euro a month then to play the latest and greatest titles you know and Xbox as I said have always led the way with their subscription service because they'll put their first party titles their big AAA titles on this service mm. day one so you are playing the latest and greatest title straight away on this streaming service on your TV without having to splash you know 500 quid for the console and then 70 quid a pop for the titles like you're just paying 13 quid a month so it's incredible value for money mm. Um, earlier this month as well PlayStation the, the state of play took place um, what did we get from that? Yeah so this was a pretty impressive show as I said it kind of kicked things off on the 2nd of June um, one of the biggest biggest announcements was what they kind of officially announced the remaster of a hugely successful title called The Last of Us this came out on PlayStation 3 uh, I think it was 2009 and then it was, sorry, about 20, 2013 maybe. And then they remastered it for PlayStation 4. And here we are in the third generation and it's been remastered again for the PlayStation 5. That is coming out on the 2nd of September this year. You know, built from the ground up for the new console. It's going to look absolutely stunning. And, you know, this was one of the most highly acclaimed titles when it originally launched and to this day still is. So big fans of the of the game are going to definitely going to pick it up. Unfortunately, you're going to have to pay full whack, which is kind of a bit of a... That's not ideal. It's not ideal if you bought it on the PS3 and then bought the remaster on PS4 and now you're going to potentially have to, you know, shill out 70 quid again for another remaster but look up the, the fan base is there there's a big HBO series coming next year um, you know big big money being put into this kind of live action series um, about the, called The Last of Us basically obviously after the game so that's going to kind of drive sales as well but yeah it's going to be a big title when it launches in September Hmm, interesting. Um, we also got a little bit more sort of insight into the the console exclusives. Was there talk of Spider Man again? Yeah, so Spider Man has been incredibly popular. You know, both the remastered title on the PS4 and then they brought out Miles Morales, which was like a sequel in 2020, both on PS4, PS5. Sold bucket loads, but Sony have been for the last couple of years starting to spread their spread their offerings elsewhere. Um, not to Xbox, obviously, but going mm. to PC, which people would have sworn. On, the, you know, on their life that this would never happen but slowly but surely they are bringing their biggest titles to PC like God of War and now later this year we're going to be getting the new you know PC gamers can actually play this once console exclusive now available on PC the new Spider-Man games will be available on the on the platform which is a huge kind of money revenue option for Sony they're like look at we put money into this title we made a, we made what we could on the consoles let's see what we can make on PC yeah and we've spoken about this like I think the business side of all this is absolutely fascinating and one day we will do a deep dive into it all but every time we talk now there seems to be a this is their money making scheme this is how they're trying to get money in and all the rest so do you think that we're going to see the end of the console exclusive and they're going to just have to put things out like obviously it'll, it might be console exclusive to PlayStation or console yeah. exclusive to Xbox but then dip into PC gaming or yeah. other mobile gaming whatever it is yeah no absolutely like the fact that this is actually the fact that this is even happening that you're seeing Spider-Man playable on a PC it just yeah. shows you that you know Sony they were the stalwarts they were never going to change their ways they were always this console exclusive locked in you aren't going to play it anywhere else and they just said look at Times are changing. We need to keep with the times and obviously expand our revenue income. So look at it. It's a win-win for everyone. It's a win-win for gamers and it's a win-win for Sony because, you know, PC gamers get to play these exclusives without having to shell out for an incredibly rare PS5 that people can't buy. 
and you know they Sony get the the, the the extra revenue coming in from this this exclusive title. You know, Xbox have been putting their exclusives on PC because they're a Microsoft brand mm. for for years. So that's not, never really been the case that it was always a console exclusive. But now with PlayStation titles on PC, the lines are blurring definitely. Interesting stuff. So that's all coming in autumn of this year. Um, we also, and I know you're super excited about this, but we got a decent look at the PSVR 2. Yes. So like as I said, at this event on the 2nd of June, they showed off some titles coming to the headset, which hasn't yet been given a release date. Mm. I, mean, I was hoping for the end of this year, but all the rumours seem to be pointing to Q1 next year. And so, do you think that's supply issues that, that could be kicking it out? Yeah, they ha- obviously they won't ever say, but I'd imagine it's just development issues and supply yeah. issues and giving the, the guys, you know, the, I think they're trying to have a really healthy launch um, window of games or launch kind of um, option mm. so that when this headset launches you're not just it's like chicken or egg we need the titles to sell the headset this happened with the PS5 and it happened with the Xbox um, yeah. when, the, when the new consoles came out whatever amount of years ago now we were dying for it because it was the first time in ages that we were going to have new flagship consoles and then for I remember like three or four months when I was talking to you you were like yeah we still don't quite have the titles yet to yeah. kind of get the brilliance out of these devices yeah. so that is, it is the chicken and egg thing, you know, do you bring out the console, do you bring out the devices or the titles first? Like which one, what way do you go? It's a timing, it's it's a kind of a... Um, it's a dance. It's like cooking, it's a yeah. dance. So you've got to make sure the timings all line up, that these developers have their titles ready for the consoles. And in particular, something like a VR headset, which is niche inside of itself, that, you know, people love their consoles, but they're not going to go into VR because it's another, it could be four or five hundred quid for this headset itself. Jeez. So if the games aren't there and the games don't show off why you need it, mm. you're not going to buy it and it's going to be a, a dead duck before it even launches. So I think Sony really know this from what I've from what I've been reading, they are going to push to have about 20 titles or something, you know, an, an impressive amount of VR titles available for this headset when it launches. One being Horizon Call of the Mountain, which just, again, it's really going to be a showcase for this headset. And it's one title that I'm you know, particularly excited about. But rumour is it's going to be Q1 2023. So we've another bit of time to wait. Um, but again, it's always better to wait for a good title than a kind of a half hour title that then needs to be updated again and again. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to hear from you. Do you think that this will succeed, the VR thing? Did you have it first time around? Were you impressed by it? Uh, techtalk at newstalk.com is the email address. As I said, when we initially got the PSVR, I was super excited because I was Batman <laughs> and it was great. But the novelty kind of wore off for me. I never fully committed to it and I don't think anything really grabbed me in the way that I'd anticipated it but you know a few weeks ago we were at a metaverse thing pretending we were on top of the Aviva like we're seeing more and more uses for virtual reality technologies it's becoming a bit norm I think our systems will become a bit more normalised to it as well even by Q1 of next year you know we'll have seen more proof of concept type stuff yeah I think it could, like... Well, yeah, like, the, that original headset, the PSVR, came out in 2016, I think. Is it so, that long ago? Yeah, yeah. Oof, it's a long time ago, so we are old, and Great. but the, the technology is getting better and better. Mm. As you said, we were at that Metaverse event, powered by the Oculus Quest 2, or the MetaQuest, uh, so Facebook or Meta are putting a, an incredible amount of money into their own development platforms and into the headset and everything else, so it's driving the industry as a whole forward. Yeah. And, you know, as you said, the adoption is there. You know, I think they've sold 10 million of those headsets for three or 400 quid, so, like, people are willing to spend, if the experiences are there. So, and then again, the, the the appetite from the audiences know what they want. There's some incredible PC VR titles, which is kind of a small cohort of people, but it's still very passionate that we could see start to filter over onto the PSVR headsets, you know, big, big yeah. games that weren't playable on the Quest. Yeah, so it's going to be a kind of a, a bit, a bit of amalgamation of different titles, different platforms, but VR is definitely still growing pretty impressively. 
Okay, well, we will, of course, uh, keep an eye on that one and bring you all of the updates. Uh, Let's turn our attention to Xbox now. There was a bit of a showcase on the 12th of June. Yeah, so as I said at the start, that Xbox and Bethesda showed off their wares and said that, you know, everything you're going to see today is going to be playable in the next 12 months. So some of the biggest titles you'll be happy to see is Mm -hmm. Forza Horizon 5. My fave. Your fave is going to get a Hot Wheels expansion. I don't know if you remember this, Forza Horizon 3 was based in Australia, if I remember correctly, and they had a Hot Wheels expansion that you, they basically looked like a child's, you know, like um, the kids' toys, like Hot the Wheels. toys. So basically, ah. they just built these track. You, you know, you were driving around Australia, but then there was like these incredible tracks, orange, you know, the famous iconic yeah. Hot Wheels orange tracks rolling up off into this. Oh, with the loops the and sky, everything. The loops and everything. Oh, so fab. you need to check this out. Anyone that's listening, you know, they've they've launched right. a trailer for this type. You know, the the, the the most recent Forza Horizon Five is set in Mexico, but this expansion with the Hot Wheels just looks. Absolutely. Like if I was a kid, my God, how, how, how impressive this looks and mm-hmm. how much fun it looks that you're driving loop to loop over these mountain ranges and it just looks incredible. That's coming out on the, I want to say July, I don't have the date. July 19th. July 19th. Yeah. Again, as I said, listeners, if you want to have a look at that, that looks unbelievable. Um, Forza Horizon then has a kind of a, a, a more serious older brother called Forza Motorsport. Mm-hmm. Not as arcadey, a bit more realistic, a bit more of a sim game. That has an official release window now of spring 2023 and it's going to be, they, they've claimed it to be the most advanced racing game ever created. So the attention to detail is literally nothing has been ignored. There, there's going to be ray tracing visuals which means that the cars are going to look more realistic than you've ever seen in a racing game in real time, on the tracks, on the Xbox. And this is one of those games that's going to come to Xbox Game Pass day one. You'll be able to play it on your Samsung TV or on your phone or whatever if you just pay the 13 quid a month. So the value there is going to just really show itself off when these titles launch. I'm very excited about that. Yeah. Uh, if you want to read any of the reviews or the latest news on all things gaming and indeed the wider tech ecosystem, you can head over to theeffect.net right now. Uh, John Riley, as always, thanks so much for joining us here on News Talk. Thanks, Jess. Tech Talk on News Talk with VMware. Free your employees to work more securely from anywhere. Visit exertus.ie forward slash VMware. Welcome back to the final part of this week's Tech Talk. Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Now, as we spoke about recently with Dr. Cara Augustenberg, there are huge efforts at the moment within the tech sector to go green. Here in Ireland, Bordnamona has created the Accelerate Green programme, which is the country's first accelerator dedicated to scaling companies leading the response to climate action and sustainability. And over the coming weeks, we're going to meet some of those companies, the first of which is Real Leaf Farm. And I'm delighted to be joined by Karen Hennessy, the CEO now. Uh, Karen, you're very welcome to Tech Talk. Before we get into the nitty gritty, will you just give us a bit of an overview as to what it is that you do? No, great to be here. So Real Leaf Farm is an agri-tech company and we're developing sustainable hydroponic farms in Ireland and the UK. And really what a hydroponic farm is growing vegetables using water and nutrients, but not using soil, not using peat and not using chemical pesticides or anything like that. So our first farm is going to be in County Offaly and our mission is to grow fresh, pesticide-free, nutritious leafy greens 365 days a year and it's for the local food market using very sustainable farming methods so it's very environmentally friendly what we're doing. Yeah and this is something I think a lot of people will be intrigued by so can you just talk to us a little bit about how yourself and your team at Real Leaf Farm are going about this? 
what we're doing is that we're building a state-of-the-art glass house in County Offaly. So it's a one hectare in size and everything happens within this facility. So from the seeding to the germination, to the propagation, and then the growing of the leafy greens. So we're growing the, like, the likes of baby leaf lettuce. So these are all growing in a controlled environment. So the water, the temperature, the humidity, the light, the nutrients that are going into the plants are all controlled. Um, and it means that there's no waste of anything. So you're growing them in a glass house. They're then automatically taken out because they're, they're grown in rafts with the roots just submerged in water. And they're lifted out into a water flume. So it's a trans, they're transported by water into a harvester. The roots are cut off. The leaves are chopped off. They fall into a tote or a box. They're brought in to a cold room to bring down the temperature. As you can imagine, in a glass house, the temperature is up at over 18 to 20 degrees. So you've got to bring that temperature down. Then they go into a high care packaging facility where they're packed in those pillow bags and then moved into another cold room ready for transport. So in all the system, we will have a number of people working who are experts in this area, but there's very little touch of the human hand, as limited as possible, which means that they're grown very clean and with very little breakage because lettuce has a lot of water in it. It's a very delicate leaf. So you're, you're really grown in a controlled, protected way, which means it's clean, very limited, if no disease in these types of facilities and no need for pesticides. So it's quite exciting to be developing this in Ireland. Does this mean that uh, the, the seasonality of certain uh, produce will, will will disappear? Does that remove that or are you still reliant on the same sort of seasonal aspects as we are present? No, we will be growing 365 days a year. Um, so the, the climate, so your, 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 the sun, the wind, the rain, all of that is now um, taken away because you're grown in a glass house. So in the winter months, when we don't have enough light, we will be using LED lights for those shoulder months to grow the product. But what's great about our facility is that we're not using any fossil fuels to actually grow the, the, the plants. And that's what's used all over Europe, all over the States, all over the world. Most of the plants use fossil fuels like gas to heat the glass house. And I don't know about you, Jesse, but um, whether you are the person who does the shopping, but there about two months ago, there was no leafy greens or lettuce or scallions or peppers to be got in nearly all the multiples in the supermarkets across the country. And that was because one, the weather in Spain had actually gone from being a no rain from October to I think around March. Then suddenly the rains came and they flooded the crop. So no crop coming in from Mercia. And then because God helped the people in the Ukraine because of the Russian war on Ukraine, it meant that um, a lot of the growing has actually moved to the Ukraine of vegetables. So in the like the Netherlands, you've a lot more vegetables or not vegetables, a lot more flowers grown in glass houses, but they also, because of the cost of gas, they stopped growing for a period because of the cost of grass. So you had this double whammy of no vegetables being available. Mm. And the other thing I want to say is that currently 80 to 90% of all lettuce leaves that we consume in Ireland are imported. So for every lettuce leaf you have on your plate, 
that's after coming probably two and a half thousand miles to make it to your plate. So they're quite heavy in terms of carbon footprint. And the other fact is that, you know, I think we all struggle with the shelf life of our product. You know, how many times in the year do you buy your bag of leafy greens and three days later you're throwing it in the bin? And that's because half of the shelf life has already spent in a truck on its way from Spain or Italy and some or the Netherlands and sometimes as far afield as Israel. So uh, what we're doing is just sustainable over time. And, you know, we're not depleting soil. We're not using up vast quantities of water. So we see it as being very climate friendly, um, very low carbon and very sustainable. What 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 sort of um, angle do you come to this from? Is it from the agri side of things? Is it from the tech side of things? Is it from the st- sustainability side of things? Like, what's your own backstory to 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 get it to where we are today? So, um, it's a very good question because it kind of hits on all of those. Um, we very much see ourselves using traditional agricultural practices, but deploying technology that's been used in different ways. So be it the heating and cooling technology that's used in data centers. So bringing in that technology, looking at um, the monitoring. So you're you're using kind of SAS when you're looking at the monitoring of be it air movement, be it the pH levels in the water, be it the, the amount of water, the lighting, the humidity. So you're bringing in new technologies to really maximize what is a traditional farming way. In actual fact, the principles we're using were the same principles for the hanging gardens of Babylon. (laughs) So it's been around for centuries, but you're bringing in new technologies and new ways and more automation. So the backbending work of horticulture is taken out of it. Mm. Um, And then um, from a, hydroponics is absolutely sustainable because of things like, you use about 20 um, litres of water versus 250 if it's in a field grown. So you're seeing, you're getting vast improvements around the amount of water. You're not using chemical pesticides. Um, The yield, because you're growing all year round. In Ireland, if you're doing crop-based, you might get one to two, maybe three cycles in a field. Whereas in our system, you're getting up to 20 times that yield. So instead of getting 37 tons from field grown, we're getting 700 tons from the same hectare. Mm. So you could see the yield has really improved. Um, energy is such a concern and price is such a concern for everyone in the whole world. And that's why it's really important that we're not using fossil fuels, but we'll be using 100% green energy. And then you're reducing your labor costs, the back baby breaking labor costs because of the automation that you're bringing in. And you're also then shortening the agricultural chain. Um, And this, as well as giving you extra shelf life, it's also giving you better nutritional content of it. So all of that makes what we're doing very sustainable. And we are talking to yourself and over the coming weeks here on Tech Talk, we'll meet other companies that are part of Board Namona's Accelerate Green programme. Just talk to me briefly about your own involvement and what it means to be part of a programme like that from a networking point of view, from a support point of view and from an insight point of view. I was thrilled to have been shortlisted 
uh, for the Board of Mona Accelerate Green program. When you're a startup, uh, you're trying to do an awful lot yourself. And while you have experience in various, and I do have some, I, I worked for Glambia for nearly 10 years, so I do have a background in food, but it's been a while ago. Mm. <laughs> so what it allowed me was as I was progressing through the development of the business and the business case and getting into meet customers, you had an ability to meet mentors and experts who were, who were experts in their in their field. So you'd someone that could help you with the pricing. You'd someone that could help you with the positioning. Um, you'd people to help you with even going in to talk to funders, VCs about how to position it, about valuations. Like there's a, you really got to see the experts coming out of Ireland, the likes of Ali Sheridan around climate, climate and environment and sustainability. And it helped me to see where we were positioned. So like I've been tracking our business against the UN sustainability goals. You know, if someone's working with us, we're going to help that company work towards achieving eight of those sustainability, UN sustainability goals. You were talking to people around scaling your business, the likes of Harry Largy, um, around investment and uh, even helping you, knocking on doors for you. Brian Highland could have was a financial expert, I had a mentoring session just this morning with Caelan King and he's about how you're building your culture mm. in your company and then around value. So there's there's a lot when you're a startup, you just have so many hats on and it's just to have that support at the period of time in where I, when I was building the business in the last number of months has been invaluable. Well, look, it's great to hear the work that you're doing and indeed about this programme. And as I mentioned there, over the coming weeks, we're going to hear from other companies uh, that have taken part. Uh, but for the moment, Karen Hennessy, the CEO of Real Life Farm. Thank you so much for joining us here on News Talk. Thank you so much, Jess. And that is all we have time for this week. If you missed any of the show, you can listen back in full on the News Talk app powered by GoLoud. I'll be back with Shane and Kira on Monday morning. But in the meantime, enjoy the rest of your weekend.